Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Cinema on Tap, your weekly movie podcast with a refreshing selection of movie reviews and industry topics on tap for discussion. As always, I am Scott Lentz, joined by my good friend and drinking buddy, Christian Ubius. Christian, happy October. Happy October. Horror movies abound. Absolutely. We're drinking German beer. We are from the world's oldest brewery, apparently. Yeah, I, I looked it up, and apparently this brewery was founded 983 years ago. So, it's older than me. That's safe to say. It's not bad. Wow, this is pretty nice. Can you imagine a thousand-year-old beer and it just tastes like crap? That'd be... Yes, I can. That'd be disappointing. It would be disappointing, but I feel like the way society is, that checks out. <laughs> Christian, our supernatural horror blend of the month... Not blend. I keep reverting to old words that we no longer use from our former days as Cinema Drip. We are Cinema on Tap now. We tap kegs every month folks we're keeping it adult here drinking grown-up beverages and our monthly rotation this month is supernatural horror with a little international flavor of course looking at some horror movies from around the world how are you feeling about this so far we are one movie in we're about mm-hmm. to talk about another you're the one in charge curating how are you feeling good <laughs> i wish the, i wish listeners could have seen your face <laughs> okay not they, committal good they're I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole of movies to cross off the watch list, and I'm very excited. I, I have yet to come across a five-star masterpiece in the things that are on the watch list. However, it is... There are so many fascinating concepts that people are working with when it comes to the supernatural horror that, that are, are just worth your time, you know? Yes, and I think one of the coolest parts about international horror is that you get to bring in scary stories from around the world into your horror movies. And the movie that we're looking at today is Japanese and has some elements of Japanese folklore, Japanese phenomena, whatever you want to call it, that they bring into the movie that are different from, that is different from American scary stories. And that's one fun thing about watching horror movies especially from around the world. And it's, I'm not, I'm not, just focusing myself on international when it comes to what we will be discussing at the end of the month. But it is nice to know that there's so much out there, and it's funny to know how much we adapt. Very true. The Hollywood loves a remake, and that's across all genres, that's across all time, of course, but Hollywood also loves to remake horror movies from other countries, and the movie that we'll be talking about today is actually pretty instrumental in that trend. Obviously not the first one, but it kicked off a new wave of this in the 90s and 2000s. But let's, let's, let's take a step back. We're going to look at our taster. What it is that is going to prep us for the discussion that we are going to have. And the taster that I set forth for us is adaptations of foreign movies into the U.S., but I also threw in some non-horror movies there for you. I was going to say, on your, the notes you left for us, Christian, foreign horror getting American remakes. The Wicker Man, yeah. Suspiria, yeah. Coda. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> horror movie, maybe not. <laughs> but certainly a remake of a French film. Hey, The Departed. <laughs> the Departed remake, this is true. It, it's, I... There, there was one point where I just because I looked up an entire list and I go there have been a lot of American remakes but not as many that have been as successful 
as Suspiria or The Ring or The Wicker Man. And The Wicker Man's successful in, in the wrong way. <laughs> the Wicker Man is sort of infamous because of the utterly insane Nicolas Cage performance at the middle of it, not necessarily because of the quality of the movie. But but this happens across all genres. I mean, there's this French film that I remember watching called Dîner de Con, which is basically a, a dinner for idiots, and it was remade into what American movie? Dinner for schmucks, of course. Exactly. <laughs> and and therefore, it, it just it's it's not specific to horror. That being said, horror has a a horror has a unique position because when you look at I don't know. British tellings of horror movies or English-speaking areas around the world. There has been a lot of Christian and Catholic upbringing that will play into the supernatural. When you're when you're looking at the religions of other areas, it's not just going to be those. It's going to be anything else that has any sort of supernatural creature to it that is going to result in something interesting. Yeah, exorcism movies are pretty popular in the States, obviously, and and in England, too, because we have that term of reference of God and the devil and angels and demons and possession. And there's obviously possession movies made around the world, but... It is, it is fun to see how other, other cultures' religious backgrounds specifically get into movies in the same way that Christian or Catholic concepts, um, I mean, same difference, but <laughs> how Christian concepts get into American horror movies especially. And there was a, a, there has been a trend to try to give more diverse filmmakers a chance to, to bring those movies to life within the U.S., or a more diverse filmmakers, but I mean a, a diversity of filmmakers to do so. Sometimes it works. There was a movie that I saw recently that was utterly atrocious. And we're not going to talk about that because I'm going to cancel this podcast recording in rage. Uh, did you watch it? Oh wait, is this the movie that we saw together, or did no, you watch a different uh, bad movie? Okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, it's I, I. <laughs> I saw it with a different friend of mine, and we looked at each other, and I go, well, that was that was awful. And he goes, yeah. And I go, I think the filmmaker has some skill somewhere. And he goes, yeah, but not in this movie. And I go, cool. Yep, that one. It, that is the, the new release. Oh, I was I, trying to protect the filmmaker because I literally despised the movie. Well, I mean, to be fair, Christian, you gave it two and a half stars, which is not despising a movie. Considering you gave the movie that we saw a half-star rating and shit-talked it to me. I mean, said unkind things about it after in the street. <laughs> Color me unimpressed by your two-and-a-half-star despising. Okay. Um, let's talk about adaptations and how they work. Let's do it, Christian. I gotta be honest. I am not super familiar... I should say super experienced with a lot of these horror remakes. The movie that we are discussing today is obviously... Ringu. Yes, a.k.a. The Ring, which is a Japanese horror film from 1998 that spurred renewed international interest in what was called J-horror, obviously Japanese horror, as well as spurring an interest in remaking these films for American audiences. And The Ring funnily enough, has both a Japanese franchise and an American franchise. And there are other movies like the Grudge franchise, which, if you're not familiar, started from a Japanese film called Juon, the Grudge. 
do you like it when movies get adapted from other countries? That's that's actually a bad question. How do you feel about the adaptation process when it crosses continental boundaries? You know, I think it can be interesting if you are able to properly translate those cultural differences. Because naturally, as we'll get into, The Ring in Japan is building off of a Japanese understanding of, of ghosts and vengeful spirits that is a little bit different in our American understanding. And I didn't have a chance to watch The Ring, directed by Gore Verbinski, the American remake, to compare them, although I wanted to. And what's interesting enough is... Gore Verbinski, filmmaker behind Rango? Yeah, and that's funny that you go there and not Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> yes. Um, the Ring also had a, a Korean remake before it had an American remake. So it's been made in multiple different cultures. But I think when they're able to translate those cultural differences and use the same story or the same story ideas and structure and put it into a new context, it can be great. But obviously sometimes you lose something in translation and you miss that cultural specificity that made the movie so you know, so fun to watch. Or, uh, I don't know, sometimes filmmakers are able to draw different things out of similar material and a remake can be great. Um, I, I wish I had seen Infernal Affairs, for example, the film that... Scorsese remade, calling it The Departed, because The Departed feels almost uniquely American, set in Boston with all these Irish gangsters. It's amazing to see that that was, to know that that was a remake, and I'm just a fool who hasn't gone back and seen the original. I'm going to say something about The Departed that I know other people agree with me on. Jack Nicholson, it might be Jack Nicholson's worst performance. (laughs) See, I know people say that. I haven't seen enough Nicholson to make a, a wide-ranging, a, take, take a wide-ranging stance on his career, but I kind of like him in The Departed, at least from the times that I've, I've seen it. I like that he's really just going for it. Near the end of his career, kind of in a just a big middle flip the bird, screw it mode of acting, but, but um, I know I, that's not necessarily a, a universal opinion. I threw Coda in there for a very simple reason. The, the, the first time Coda was made in France... It uh, bombed, honestly, when it came to representation about the deaf community in France. And they actually said that some of the sign language that they were using was just purely incorrect. (laughs) Which is not great when you're making a movie about the child of deaf adults. And... There, there is a thing about taking something that is already successful somewhere else and taking something that maybe is not successful or taking something that was not handled well the first time that it occurred. I do think that those are two differences. Now, um, this, that, however, does not describe Ringu because Ringu is, is, was incredibly well handled and it was coming from a successful book franchise and a successful TV adaptation. And so it's not like you're taking something that people are not liking. It is interesting to see what you could do differently. For example, when we began to adapt our own Godzilla movies, Godzilla, of course, started in Japan. And Japan has a bit of a history with nuclear weapons that we do not have. No, we don't. We, in fact, uh, gave them that history, shall we say, thanks to good old Ron J. Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, we did. Um, no reference at all to a movie that came out this year. <laughs> but 
I'm, I'm, I mean, I would be lying if I said I didn't like some of the Godzilla movies that have be, that have been made here. And honestly, there's a Godzilla movie that the U.S. has made that I like more than the original. It, so it, I don't know. It's it's a weird slippery slope, knowing that there are areas that you can definitely look to for influence, but there's there's a difference between looking to an area for influence and looking to make a remake. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Godzilla. I'm interesting. I think it's interesting you brought up Godzilla because that's a good example of taking something out of its cultural context, where there's a big long franchise of Godzilla movies in Japan. Not all of them are necessarily capital S, capital F, serious films. There are like 15. There's Godzilla, <laughs> there's Mechagodzilla, there's there's um, Mothra, there's Godzilla versus Mothra. Keep going. There's, I can't. Uh, I ran out at <laughs> four. Ghidorah, Rodan. But that first one obviously is steeped in this experience of the bomb being dropped in Japan and filmmakers starting to react to it and make movies about that experience. Whereas, naturally, Americans remaking that film are going to be more drawn to the special effects potential of having this big giant kaiju to stomp around the world and kill people and destroy stuff. And I haven't seen the Godzilla remake that Roland Emmerich did, and that's not well regarded, but the newer Godzilla movies, I'm pretty much a fan of all of them. I don't know if they're better than the original, but I like them all. And that's taking this this movie that is, yes, it's a kaiju monster movie, with some social commentary very very much woven into the narrative maybe you're losing some of the commentary but americans or british filmmakers depending on who's making the movie they can bring in some new ideas using the same vessel or they can just create a great piece of entertainment which is also acceptable for an acceptable reason for a movie to exist but you know what's also interesting is that it has happened the other way around it's just that when it happens the other way around there are very few examples of it being as successful as it is today and i think the the biggest example is just kurosawa with all of his shakespearean adaptations honestly that are more famous than many shakespearean adaptations that we have today he, he definitely does have plenty of Shakespeare adaptations. One that I have seen is... Oh, he's throwing the blood. Yes, which is based on Macbeth. And then also, don't we have... No, it's not that one. <laughs> is it this one? Uh, Find it, Christian. No, it's not that one. I think it's this one then. <laughs> uh, yes, Ikiru, which is based on a Tolstoy story. And... Those just do not get as much recognition unless you are dealing with a world-renowned filmmaker, which occurs less and less nowadays. Which, you know, there are also slightly different types of adaptation where in Front of Blood, obviously the character isn't called Macbeth or something like that, but it's taking the story and the structure and the, the basic ideas of the plot and applying a Japanese framework to it, which is what... Kurosawa was doing with those movies, so remakes. You know, a lot of people, they, they hate remakes on principle, and I understand where that's coming from, especially when they're not done with a lot of creativity or ingenuity, or it's something like remaking a popular movie from the 80s and doing it now, because you kind of just hope that it will make money at the box office. But obviously, when done right by writers and directors who care about their work and are trying to make a good movie, obviously it can be done very well. Or it could be a piece of garbage. Or it could be a piece of garbage. Exactly. With that, let's delve into the movie that we're going to be talking about today. 
And with that, are you ready, sir, for... I, don't, I was going to say your opening question, but we're not on opening question yet. We're going to be talking about Ringu. <laughs> I was going to say, we don't know the director of this movie. We don't know the cast members. I mean, we got a lot to cover before we start talking opening questions. Uh, not really. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of things to cover. Okay, so Ringu, or just Ring. Not The Ring. Apparently, The Ring is the only thing for the U.S. version. It's just Ring. The film is titled The Ring in English in Japan. And released as Ringu in North America. So some confusing I don't know swaps of words there. It's based on a novel by Koji Suzuki. And that novel had its own franchise. It was adapted into a TV movie, I believe, in 95. Yes. 98 is its theatrical adaptation. There are actually two theatrical adaptations that come out, one after the other. Yeah. The first one is Ringu. The second one is Spiral. Yes. Ringu becomes a phenomenon, and Spiral... No one knows about. <laughs> to the point where the third movie in the franchise is released called Ring, Ring two, 2, that ignores the events of Spiral and continues on from the events of Ringu. Because I think that it actually uses the characters from Ring, Yes. because Spiral is focusing on other characters. Yes. Okay. And it, it is an interesting experiment, because the movies were released at the same time. Yes. Kind of like, see one part of the story see another part of the story and one just took with audiences and one didn't i mean there's there's another example of that another u.s example of that um letters from iwo jima and flags of our fathers true one gets the best picture nomination and one doesn't <laughs> all right now the screenplay is written by hiroshi takahashi and it is directed by hideo nakata it is based on this now it is starring Nanako Masushima, Hiroyuki Sanada, Rikia Otaka. There are the, the the premise you you might know. It is quite famous. It is a bit about a folklore of a videotape that if you watch it, you will see an image of a girl. Then you get a phone call, and you die seven days afterwards. The opening scene almost felt like the opening scene from Scream. Yes. I noticed that. I wrote that in my notes. Exactly. <laughs> and the Scream is actually older than this movie by three years. Right. It, it has this cold open on two characters who one of them dies from whatever is killing people in this movie. And she's referenced throughout the movie, but neither of them appear anymore. Very similarly to Scream. Except in Scream, both characters died I guess there's only one. Her boyfriend is found dead. And doesn't we really get to see him? But no, he's found alive for like three seconds before mm, he's true. found dead. No, but they there's also like this fear of a phone call ringing, even though that I, I do think it's commenting on Scream because of that phone call, despite nothing coming from that phone call. It does have the advantage of the novel being written before Scream released, so I imagine that we'd, is we'd, taken from. We'd have to read the novel, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to do that. Just just to say, not not necessarily clear-cut, but there, there is some shared DNA, I would say. There is some shared DNA. Okay. Now, um, yes, it's this cold open. There are these two girls. One confesses to the other that she watched the video seven days ago. Then that girl who watched the video seven days ago, she just screams, and then we cut away. And we don't know what happened to her. It turns out that she has died. And we are following instead Reiko Asakawa. 
and she is a journalist who's trying to research what it is that has happened because the girl who died is her niece. And she's trying to figure out what exactly is, what is the folklore around this cursed videotape. Now, she decides to go after or to get help from her husband, Ryuji Takayama. Ex-husband. Ex-husband. Ex well, she does refer to him as her husband at the very end of the movie, which is kind of, it, it's interesting as to why she refers to him um, in that way. And there's something that, I don't know, maybe it was because of the, of the subtitles that I missed. Apparently her husband's psychic. <laughs> yeah. Yes. At, me... at first, I, I also did not realize what was going on. Or I, I realized what was going on, but I thought I missed something. But I don't know if it's clearly stated in the movie. It's maybe something you pick up on before it's what's happening. But... And so she finds this videotape. She watches it. She then shows it to her ex-husband. To be fair, this is thought to be an urban legend. And they're investigating these murders for these teenagers who watched the tape, allegedly. So, you know, it's not like it's a well-known curse or anything at this point. <laughs> to her credit. And then her son ends up watching this tape. Okay. Can I be real with you? Yeah. Her son is Yoichi. Yeah. Played by Rikia Otaka, who you mm -hmm. mentioned. Might be in the running for cutest kid I've seen in the movie and when there is a sort of jump scare but like a scary moment when she realizes that he is watching the tape not okay not okay with, with, with my boy Yuichi getting the getting the put had that curse put on him I mean come on it's not fair I like the kid from Minari I think yes. he's cuter Alan Kim. I like the kid from Belfast, thinking this 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 Did kid's this kid's okay. Yeah, offensive, but <laughs> continue on, Christian. Continue on. <laughs> okay, it is just a search to try to dismantle the curse before and try to find the origins of this curse before it's too late. Um, is there anything else we need to talk about? Did I put anything else under background information? You know, um, I don't really think you did. Obviously, this this does spawn a big franchise with lots of lore, lots of movies, and American remakes, which, interestingly enough, Hideo Nakata does play a role in. The original is directed by Gore Verbinski, as I mentioned, but they brought in Nakata to direct The Ring 2 here in America. And he also had another film of his remade from uh, American or English-speaking audiences. Uh, he made a film called Dark Water that was then remade by not him by a different director and starring jennifer Connolly. so his films certainly becoming much more well known to american audiences at the time due to their international acclaim and then also their english language remakes that would happen after okay let's 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 go into your opening question so like the changeling the origins of the horror within ringu stem from a backstory decades before the plot kicks in I mean, the, the, the plot is trying to discover what exactly is that originated this videotape and the legends behind this videotape. What do you think of the lore of Ringu? And was, was the story one that you thought helped make an interesting plot? Is it one that you wanted to know more about? So, I think what's interesting about... Ringu, especially compared to The Changeling, which we talked about last week, 
is that structurally they are a bit similar in that mm -hmm. much of the plot is devoted to this investigation. And this time it's really an investigation because our main character is a journalist. And she is trying to hunt down details about this videotape, figure out where it came from, who made it, and trying to understand it so that she can put a stop to it. And obviously, differently from the Changeling, she has a vested interest in stopping it because she believes that her life is in danger. Whereas in the Changeling, George C. Scott's character there is more interested in helping this spirit be put to rest. With that, I think as the world expanded and we got more of the videotape, I think what gives the movie a sort of a neat structure is seeing the way that these bits of the videotape are explained by what happened in the past. Like, for example, there is a, a brief shot of a, a Japanese character, and meaning the written language, in the, in the eye of, of someone whose face we can't fully see because it's close up on the mm -hmm. eye. And they, they say this character means Sado or something like that. And so they come to realize later that that's referring to the name of someone else. And then they can go from, they follow that clue to figure out the full name of that person and who that could have been. And getting to see how the different pieces and parts of the tape connect and lead them from one breadcrumb to another is pretty cool. I will say, I don't know how, how much I necessarily want to unpack the lore even further. Although the way it does set up this vengeful entity I, I think there might be enough to get me in for another movie or two. <laughs> I, I'm prone to watching more movies from franchises after I see the first movie, almost out of obligation, just to see what else they kept doing with it. Yeah, so, no, 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 I've told you. That's why I'm all in on the DCEU. Of course, yes. <laughs> but I've never given up on it. I mean, we... I forget what this is for, but we watched Resident Evil. A movie that you Yo. proclaimed as a masterpiece. It's for, a masterpiece. For unknown reasons. And you love that movie. I, I liked that movie. And it got me to watch it got me to watch another one that is not nearly as good, but I'll probably watch the third one someday. You know, I, I just like to keep up with these series. Once you once you get in the door, it's fun to see where they go. What next. is it that you called it? Fart Rock? Yes. Nice. That, that movie is, is backed by, by some fart rock, which is not a term I made up. I, I, I learned that from my internet forebears. Okay. But that, that's where it is for me. What, what do you make of the lore? Okay. I think this movie is pretty incredible. Like, I, I thought this movie, direction-wise, story-wise, was so incredibly cool. So well done. So thrilling. The like it, it it's weird the the death scenes where you just to see because when this entity kills you, um, your heart just stops. And they're all left with mouths like agape, just like fully open. When when we saw the first one of those, it did get me. When the mother of of her niece, of her sister is flashbacking to that scene. That was rough. That that got me so bad. Yeah, I'm, I'll be real. <laughs> that scared me. That was rough. Here's my issue, which I think was my issue with the changeling, which I think I realized just kind of comes with the territory of having low-budget, high-concept horror films. Um, it's a little didactic. And there are long stretches where Ryuji, so her ex-husband is just publicly explaining what is going on. And I go, 
what? And we, <laughs> Who is this doctor? Yeah. They were together. Wait, so she's so, so it's not his daughter. She's like the daughter of the devil. Like it, 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 it is. It was confusing, but I can't deny this creature is fascinating. The fact that when she was alive, what happened to her is fascinating. These performances are amazing, also. Yeah, the the performances. I agree. I'm sure we get to them, but the yeah, the whole the, the lore of this entity that we learn about, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Obviously, there will be spoilers in this conversation, but you, we also get to see these like sepia toned or maybe black and white. I kind of I'm missing the, the finer point, but these monochrome uh, flashbacks to people in the past who had an influence on the creation of this tape. And it does play out with Ryuji explaining these things, but we also know that these flashbacks are what he is seeing, basically. This is his mind's eye as he's getting to go back to the past with his psychic abilities that were not foregrounded particularly well. And there certainly are parts of the movie where you sort of just feel like Nakata and and his writer just had to stop and catch the audience up to what was going on and why what's happening should feel significant to us. Which is hard, because when you're in a horror movie, you don't really want to be taken out of what's happening in the moment. Even if you have to learn the history of the situation, you want to continue to sit on the edge of your seat and possibly be frightened or scared by what happens next. And these historical flashbacks, although certainly illuminating, I don't know how much they help the pacing. Or, or at least, it, it kind of stinks to have this movie where the, the atmosphere is so great, some of the scares are so effective, and then we put a pause on what's happening to just do a quick two-minute recap of events I, okay. that happened that are now influencing the present. Okay, so first of all, the uh, this is from the Wikipedia page. When... when um, when Reiko and Ryuji are discovering or trying to figure out where it is that they should go, they find a cryptic message spoken in an Oshima dialect and prepare to go to Oshima. That was, that completely went over my head. That it was because the dialect was the dialect was there that they had to go to Oshima. When they go to Oshima, they are trying to figure out where, what it is that they should search there and they find that decades ago there was a woman who was able to predict a volcano that erupted and then eventually threw herself into a into that volcano and uh, they take that as the clue that that is where they should go those those pieces don't connect with, with to me I, I I I don't know if they connected to you but I go that seems kind of a, like a stretch that seeing that in the newspaper is, is is how you know that that's the woman you need to talk to. Yeah, I and, and maybe there's something that better explains it that it's just escaping Lost, most of our minds. Yeah. yeah, but certainly it, it was one of those leaps in logic where you just trust the characters and, yes. you, and you say I'm not from Japan so maybe this is more this is more culturally relevant and well known this particular volcanic eruption or maybe it's entirely fictional I wouldn't know but <laughs> this this eruption is known enough in the culture that they would say to themselves let's let's go here this has to be it but then when they do the flashbacks to that woman and they discover, honestly, that's also a little bit confusing, how she had psychic powers and there was a doctor who was trying to exploit her powers 
by 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 inviting other people over from a university to watch. Um, I thought yeah, so it was fascinating. I right. thought it was cool. Yeah, I didn't know how it connected to the story. Well, there is this this professor, Doctor Ikuma, who is researching ESP. The, the yes. Ex, extra sensory perception. Yes. And this woman who can read minds. It, it is sort of his test subject, and that that connected for me, I suppose, because we we have known that the the woman that we're going back into the past to to see Shizuko, we've known that Shizuko was considered kind of out of her mind. People didn't really believe in her ESP. They thought she might have been crazy. And Dr. Akuma then was trying to sort of side with her and prove her case. But we're, we learn like bits and pieces. And, and that of, they were in a relationship. Right. Like that comes out later. We realize like, oh, maybe they had a relationship. And oh, there's a daughter. And, and all these little bits and pieces start to come out over the course of 30 minutes of the movie. So there are certain things that I definitely picked up on better. Than, uh, than maybe the Wikipedia summary so, suggests. So I, I I guess what I'm trying to say is not that I didn't pick up on it. I just didn't know how... I didn't know how the characters got to asking the questions that revealed that about the backstory. I, I basically thought, you are making a decision that I think it would still take me 10 more pieces of information to be able to make. I think with the... With following up on Shizuko, they find out that she has living relatives. Yes, I do. I do remember and that. So they are able to go find those people and they start find the questions. room that is exactly like the room that's shown in the videotape. The uh, Nakata loves to to cut to something and then really hit a music cue so that you know it it should be uh, scary <laughs> in the moment where they walk into the room. They kind of look over, and you know it's about to come. And he cuts, and you hear da da da. Looks at this mirror that we've seen in in the videotape. Good moment, love it. But he is. This movie looks so good. Also, though, I mean, even the parts that are shot on videotape, they just blend right in. It's so creepy. There's like the noise that is on the screen. By the way, guys, if you don't know what noise is, it's the little fuzzy things. <laughs> It's the, <laughs> Sitting back and realizing we may have some younger listeners who did not grow up watching VHS tapes. It's like when a movie looks fuzzy, that's noise. It's, it's called noise. <laughs> um, and, and that part I just thought was so incredibly cool. All of it cut together seamlessly. Um, and maybe I do differ from you in this part. I kind of want to know more about this doctor. Like I would love the prequel movie on what happened between on what happened between this doctor Sadako and her daughter no 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 Sadako no Sadako is the daughter Sadako is the daughter Shizuko the mother and Sadako the daughter because well it, Christian do I have the movie for you there's a prequel <laughs> it's called Ring Zero and yes it is a prequel about Sadako they they insinuate okay so y'all spoilers they insinuate that Sadako, who... Sadako is the girl that they see in the tape. Well, she's one of the two. Technically, Shizuko also appears on the tape. This this review is really confusing for listeners. <laughs> we're kind of just we're kind of just covering the plot at this point. But yes, like, it, but, it's a bit to follow. It's sort of an investigation, you know? That, that's also, I think, a benefit to the movie because there's... 
there's so much the story is very interesting yeah the story is very interesting Sadako is the girl who kills you from the videotape it is insinuated that her father is a demon or some kind of ghost and uh, we know now that Shizuko, the girl that they went to investigate, who predicted that the volcano would erupt, is her mother. So it's basically the investigation of what happened to those, how Sadako ended up dying, and it is her revenge at having been killed for her psychic powers that causes her to kill everyone who watches her videotape. Yes. Um... What? Where do we go from here? We've covered the plot. <laughs> well, I mean, while we're while we are talking about the plot in full spoilers at this point, so apologies, folks, if you haven't seen Ringu or watched The Rain, go do either one of those things. But we recommend the one we're talking about here on the show. I think at the end of the day, it it is this blend of investigative journalism story plus scary movie, and I think it generally works. And I will say the the one of the final sequences of the movie, which is really when the, the moment that we actually see Sadako and what she does to her victims, we get it once, and it is so scary. <laughs> and it it's one of the better sequences in the movie, like this revelation. Is that the, at the end? Yeah. All she, all she really does is part her hair and look at him. Well, there, there's so much more to the sequence than, than that. Because, of course, we, we have... Ryuji's uh, spoiler for again, sorry, but <laughs> Ryuji has this tape and we he realizes what is about to happen because yeah. there there's something involving a well and they think that they have defeated the curse and we see it flash on the screen. She climbs out of the well on video and starts shambling towards the screen and eventually climbs, climbs out, out of, of the, the TV. TV. And not only is that wine incredibly effective just just in a special effect like it's it's well done especially for the time but also the way that they did it is so freaking creepy because they actually hired a, an actress who um oh no no uh, kabuki like i think she did kabuki performances so she is very good with using her body to act performing theatrically as opposed to on film and they had her record this sort of creepy walk backwards and then they flipped that. They reversed it. So it looks like she's walking forwards on in the, in the final product of the movie. But it just looks so strange and, and unnatural to really play up how otherworldly and terrifying Sadako is. And yes, the moment where she makes her kill, she it, it, it's the image of the poster. Which I was wondering when that would come into play. But we see this quick extreme close-up on her face and her this one terrifying eye looking out from behind the long hair that covers her face and strikes fear into the in the heart of Ryuji and kills him pretty dramatically too because we thought that this whole curse was over and this family might even be reunited but no it's a really brutally effective sequence who gives the best performance who gives the best performance I I mean it's wrong if I say is it wrong if I say my boy Yoichi for Rikio Otaka? Uh, I think he's very good as a child performer, but I 
am a little bit drawn towards Hiroyuki Sonata. Just I agree. I, I really I really like him. I really he, like him. He's an actor that people will definitely recognize if they go back and watch this. He most recently was in John Wick Chapter 4. He also appeared in Bullet Train, had a cameo in Endgame. He's in the new Mortal Kombat movie. So he's definitely a recognizable face to He was in Minions. <laughs> he was in Minions. But I really like his grumpy, troubled, psychic professor that he's playing here. Um, Nanako Matsushima playing Reiko, who's really the star of the movie. She gets more scenes, more screen time, it's, and, and she spends far more time with Yoichi than, than Ryuji does if he spends any time with his son. I'm not sure if we see that on screen. So she's more of the star of the show, but I was really drawn to Sonata. Okay. I, I agree that he is... What's what's interesting is that he doesn't acknowledge his son, his son once, the son that 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 he and Reiko did, and there's like a hardness to him, but also like a desperation to want to save his ex-wife and want to save his son from this. So he he's so incredibly complex, whereas um, whereas Reiko is wearing her emotions on her sleeve, now. She does an incredible job also because she is basically reacting to this the way that we as the audience would. Yeah. She is the one being like, frick. <laughs> you know? A vengeful spirit is coming for me and my child. Yes. A vengeful spirit is coming for me and my child. I will say, I think there were a few moments where Matsushima's performance tipped into melodrama. And I'm not sure if, it it, if it's her or if it's what she was directed to do. But to me, there were a couple of moments where she just starts screaming. She's wailing at the top of her lungs about Yuichi or about Ryuji or about herself. And it, it felt like wandering a, outside the milieu the movie was creating for me. There's a part where she is pulling up buckets of water and she's so exhausted, but she doesn't just say I'm exhausted. She faints backwards. And it, it felt a tad bit too much. Um, so I, I know what you're saying, but it, it does look like it's a combination of her being told to do so and also her own, whatever it is she felt more comfortable acting in. Yeah. It just, it, it's for me in trying to look at the movie with a critical eye, that, that is something that I noticed where that's why I give the edge to Sonata where I don't think he has a moment where he really takes me out of it. Other than uh, during that scene that you're talking about, there is a moment where he just open hand slaps her across the face, which He's trying to sort of get her out of this. Um, she's, she's sort of like, it's nearing the end of her seven days and she, she's afraid she's about to be killed by this vengeful spirit. So obviously she's a little hysterical and he's trying to snap her out of that. You hate to see an ex-husband open hand slap his wife or his ex-wife, but I, I, I obviously it's it's not just so clear cut as this bad dude slapping a woman. It, it Obviously there's more context to it, but that, that gave me, a, you know, rubbed me the wrong way. But even so, that's really the only moment for Sonata where it felt like he's getting out of the atmosphere that Nakata is creating. Whereas Matsushima is unfortunately saddled with a few of these melodramatic moments where she's screaming and crying and wailing. And, and it normally kind of felt like a much more, much more serious and composed atmosphere for the movie. And, and I don't know, you know, you're trying to cultivate a tone, Sometimes you can't do it perfectly the entire way through, and most of the way through this movie is very composed tonally. There is one part of this movie which is shameful. Shameful. She is trying 
Nanako is trying to figure out why. So um, she's the one who plays Reiko. She's trying to figure out why she is the one who got why the curse was lifted for her. And because uh, yeah, we should say. I mean, plot wise, spoilers, 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 whatever. She doesn't die after the seven days. They they find Sadako's bones actually. And they think that is what lifts the curse. Obviously, we just talked about how Ryuji gets gets it in the end, but go on. And she's looking at the videotape of she's looking at the videotape that the has what the cursed girl is in and the copy she made. And she's like, I made a copy. And then she's driving off into the sunset. And over overlaid, we see an interview. That apparently someone conducted with a little girl or with like a schoolgirl, where she says, Don't you know the only way to lift the curse? You need to make a copy of the videotape and show it to someone else. And I go, What the frick? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? No. So, this is also is not how Reiko finds out this information. She, well, she finds out the information because in the reflection of the TV, she sees Ryuji's ghost pointing at her back. Which is an image from the original videotape. Is this sort of person with a, yeah. a cloth over their head. And in the bag, she pulls out and it is the, I think that's the original ghost tape. But she also has the copy tape. And she's looking at them one from the other. And she's trying to, and she says to herself, I made a copy. Then she drives off into the sunset, right? Overlaid, you hear the sound of someone saying something, which is that the only way to get rid of the curse is to make a copy of the tape when you see it and show that copy to someone else. I hated that as it felt so didactic because I was trying to figure out why it is that the curse was lifted for her. And I didn't come to that conclusion, nor do I think the movie made me come to that conclusion. Well, I guess then what did you miss? Because the whole point of her seeing that that apparition in the reflection of the TV and pulling but, out the tape from her purse, like she makes that connection. That, that she made time. Well, she makes the connection that she made a copy. But I didn't know that I, I, I didn't assume that just making a copy is how you save it. And well, that's... It's not making a copy. It's how you save yourself. It's making a copy and showing it to someone else. Yes. But, like, showing it to someone else, I I don't know if your mind went there. Mine did it. Um, and there are, like... there Well, are, uh, to me, it sort of just connected at the same time. Where she knows that she made a copy and gave it to Ryuji, and that must have been what saved her. Whereas he didn't think he had to do anything like that, and he was done in. It... I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's too much of a reach because also there are so many questions that come up from that. Do, when you make a cop, can you just show the copy that she already made? Um, this is, does that person then need to make a copy to show to someone else? Because they, can you keep reusing that same copy? It, it, it felt a little too convoluted at the end where I still am not entirely sure how the way to beat the curses. I, I didn't find that part convoluted what i did find is, is i sort of got a little bit lost in the details of why sadako this person who died decades before the invention of the cassette tape was now using it as her way of getting vengeance on the world that did not accept her 
Um, which that's explained in the Wikipedia plot summary, but I must have missed it in the movie. And, and to me, that that felt a little more convoluted as to why now for Sadako, why the cassette tape as her particular means of killing. And I think there's certainly some some interesting thematic ideas to take from that, whether it's the the threat of new technologies disrupting disrupting ways of life or threatening children in the same way that the the people who are the original victims of the ghost they are all teenagers and yoichi as a young boy is also threatened and this would drive reiko and ryuji to solve this mystery you know there's certainly some interesting themes that they're working with that relate to the cassette tape even though obviously it's not new technology now but i that didn't connect for me i, I may have missed a, a key line of dialogue or something but that's what sort of lost me with the plot at least no that i mean that makes sense um that's all i got i mean i guess my question my last question for you is one of them is just did this movie scare you like were you frightened were you scared shocked spooked anything (laughs) i was creeped out but not frightened although when when she when when Ryuji is seeing the video that the it turns on and she comes out of it, I was like a uh, frick. She gonna kill him, kind of a thing. That's I, that's the most that people get me. I I sort of have a thing about you know obviously we all know about a jump scare when a when a filmmaker cuts to something scary suddenly and the the shock of the moment is what gets us. Yeah. So I have a thing for sort of the reverse jump scare of looking at something creepy and not cutting away from it. And that creepy thing either stays there or starts walking towards you. And that is why that moment gets me so much. I think, seriously, it's one of the most effective and scariest moments in the whole movie is when Sadako um, crawls out of the well on video and starts slowly, creepily walking towards the screen. I think there are some jump scare moments here that are more effective too, like finding the body of the the flashback to the quick flashback, I should say, to finding the body of this first victim who's related to Reiko. It's just seeing her sort of deformed body without, you know, without blood or gore or anything like that. It's just frozen in this creepy position. That got me that quick flash to her. The shot of the the mirror once they realize they're at this haunted hotel, (laughs) I suppose you can call it. Definitely some moments that scared me. I would say a little bit more than the Changeling. The Changeling had a couple of scary moments. This is scarier than the Changeling. But Ringu is is scarier by a degree. I would say if the Changeling is maybe a 3 out of 10, Ringu ups it to like a 5 or a 6. Yes. So that is Ringu. That is Ringu. I watched it on Tubi. I rented it from the good folks at Cinephile, which is what I often do for the movies we talk about on this podcast. But it's on Tubi for free. You gotta watch some ads, but you can do it. Great atmosphere. Some good scares. Hiroyuki Sonata, he's the man. Yoichi, very, very cute, very cute little guy. Yes. <laughs> sure. Just wants to go fishing with his grandfather. All he wants to do is go fishing <laughs> with his grandfather. You know, apparently the Wikipedia page says that she drives off to show her her, um, her father the tape, his to have him show his grandfather the tape so that the curse is lifted from him. And I'm like, that's effed up. Yeah, it's a, in fact, it's what she says in the movie. <laughs> so it's not just Wikipedia. I missed it. It's like the last line of dialogue, Christian. Were you already looking at your phone? Getting that letterboxed entry ready to roll? <laughs> I, didn't, I don't review this on Letterboxd before we talk you, about you it. You have it logged. You have it logged. 
maybe you're just getting getting the date in there, lining it up. Oh, uh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but that is Ringu, folks. We hope if you sat through all of our spoilers for whatever reason you still haven't seen it, that you do go check it out on Tubi. It's it's very much worth your time. Very much worth your time. We are two for two this month, I would say, with both the Changeling yes. and Ringu. And next week. We are moving to another continent, but also back to the English language, Christian, because we will be discussing... The Babadook. Yes, from the great country slash, uh, the great country slash continent, I should say, of Australia. So that I, is, once, I once asked someone how long it would take to drive from the western part of Australia to the eastern part, and they looked at me and they said, why would you ever want to do that? There's nothing. And I go, I'm sorry. You don't want to drive through the outback, Christian? <laughs> Apparently it's 41 hours. It, it's a big place. It'd be a while. It's a very big continent. The Babadook is available a couple of places right now, I'm sure, partly Hulu. because it's October. But yes, on Hulu, definitely. And Tubi. If you, there you go, and Tubi. It's also on Canopy, I believe. So if you have access to that service through your local library, which I would recommend you check out if you do, because it's a fantastic service. You can also watch The Babadook there. But also, this is the most recent and popular movie that we'll be discussing. So hopefully, folks are already ready to roll for that. I'm watching this for the first time. So I'm excited to finally understand what's going on with The Babadook and his his creepy top hat and we'll look forward to talking about that next week absolutely and folks that is our show so of course if you're still here still listening thank you very much we greatly appreciate it there are a few things that you can of course do to support the show number one please do subscribe and leave us a rating or a review if applicable for you Helps us reach new listeners on those platforms, and we just greatly appreciate seeing those reviews come in. Seeing those five-star reviews just gives us a, a smile in our heart and makes makes us happy. So please do leave those reviews and subscribe. We appreciate it. You can also follow... Actually, let me say this first. You can also send us an email mm-hmm. to cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts on Ringu, or maybe you're a big fan of The Ring, the American remake, and you want to let us know your thoughts about that, please send them in. We'd love to bring them up on the show. Or if you just have a supernatural horror movie that you like and want us to check out, let us know. Again, that's cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, as I just mentioned for Christian. It's a place where we are regularly reviewing and rating the things that we are watching. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? I'm, I have a messed up watch list for the rest of October. Why is that? Because I need to catch up on movies. But I think November 1st, I'm going to watch Rami and Michelle's High School Reunion. You're, you're flagging uh, Rami and Michelle's High School Reunion, a movie from the early 2000s, like a high school reflection comedy with Lisa Kudrow and... I can't remember the other person. Is Mina Savar, maybe? Mira Sorvino. Mira Sorvino. Mira Sorvino. Yeah. Why? Well, because it's got Lisa Kudrow in it. <laughs> you can always talk about Lisa Kudrow. Lisa Kudrow rotation. We'll do a, a former Friends cast members rotation. We'll get some Jennifer Aniston in there. We'll talk about a Scream movie. Frog Al Courtney Cox. We'll watch The Paul Bearer with, with David Schwimmer and Gwyneth Paltrow, as directed by Matt Reeves. Be great. Be a great time. Oh, who... Man, I mean, we could find something for Matt LeBlanc. He's probably been in a movie. He directed... He Not directed. He has been in a few movies. He was in a Lost in Space remake that did not go over well. Okay. He also did a movie, I think, where he plays baseball with a monkey. I think I think that's what he did. That's good. <laughs> monkeys should know how to play baseball. It's very, very important for monkeys to play baseball. 
obviously he was in a movie yeah. called Lovesick, rom com. Uh, the film stars Matt LeBlanc as the man who tries to prevent his strange psychological condition from affecting his new relationship with Ellie Larder. And that movie was watched by fewer than 1,000 Letterboxd members, and I've never heard of it. Oh, so. he was also in Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Uh, yes, he was, although I think that's more of, a, more of a cameo, perhaps? No, no, he's playing a named character with Shia LaBeouf and, Pete and Luke Wilson, so... So Matt LeBlanc rotation. We'll, we'll talk Charlie's Angels... We'll talk Ed, the movie where he plays baseball with a monkey. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be great. It'll be great. Alrighty, folks. Until <laughs> next time, this has been Cinema on Tap. Thanks for listening.